Welcome to Commercial Conversations Over Coffee, the show where two college dropouts turned real estate millionaires discuss all aspects of commercial real estate investing. Now, welcome your hosts, Tyler Cobble and apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. Hey, good morning, everybody. What is going on? I am Tyler Cobble, joined as always by my co-host, Bruce Peterson. Bruce, what's going on, man? We've been up to this week. Oh, well, been busy. But before we get into that, I just noticed that, you know, I get apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. We need to go Tyler, the mayor of East Nashville, Cobble. <laughs> right? We got to call you out some way. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. If people want to call me the mayor of East Nashville, I will gladly accept that uh, that nomination. <laughs> we'll, we'll secede from the whole of Nashville and start our own little community. There you go. But uh, yeah, had a really, really busy week. Me, you know, separately in business and then you and I together. But we just closed on a 256-unit apartment we clo uh, we sold yesterday. Congrats. It took me a year and a half to get here through one bad buyer and a really good buyer. But we finally closed yesterday. So very, very welcome Christmas gift to our investors. So that was awesome. Um, you know, just staying busy with everything else. And of course, you and I have a, a cash raise on probably the coolest project I've ever been a part of uh, that we're in the middle of right now. So we got another, you know, maybe two to four weeks to go on that. And we'll be full and uh, yeah, lots of exciting stuff. Yeah, that's been uh, that's been pretty eye opening going through a, such a large cash raise with you. I mean, you've been through so many and um, you know, mine have honestly, I mean, the largest I've ever done was like a million bucks and, and we're doing, you know, five and a half million on this one. So it's only five and a half times larger than the one I've done before. So, you know, no big deal. Yeah, I've done 12 so far, so it never gets easier. It never gets less stressful. You know, you got a good product with great returns, but you know, if you can't raise the money for that, you know, it doesn't do you any good. So, you know, until you get it buttoned up, there's always a little, little anxiousness. Yeah, I know. Is this, I mean, for me, it's it's the most stressful part of the deal. Like finding the land, putting it under contract, putting my money where my mouth is on that side of it, not a problem at all. I could do that in my sleep, but you get to the capital raise and for whatever reason, like that to me is the stressful part of the deal. Everything else is fine. Is that is it kind of the same way with you? Oh, it absolutely is. The rest of it, we've done a hundred times. We've managed, we've operated, we've, uh, you know, communicated. But if you can't raise the money, it doesn't work. And, you know, that's something we talked about last week about, you know, is this for everybody? It, it maybe not. Um, that cash raise, if it doesn't go well and you have to pull the plug, which very often you can pull the plug and get all your earnest money back within, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 days uh, in multifamily or commercial. But if, if you pull out within time, get your earnest money back, you have a lot of sunk costs along the way. Right? You're going to pay your PPM attorney, uh, syndication attorney. You're going to pay some other legal bills with your uh, real estate attorney. You've got inspections you're paying for. So there's a lot that you put out. And if you don't get the money raised and you have to pull the plug, you'll get your earnest money back. But you're still maybe out of pocket twenty to $40,000. So there is some financial risk for the syndicator deal sponsor up until the day that you close. And then you've got to operate it. That's right. I mean, it's a significant amount of risk. I mean, we've got we've got six over six figures tied up into this deal already and we haven't closed. Right. So, I mean, right. that's that's a pretty significant amount of risk. And that's you know, that's just part of being a GP, though. Right. Like that's part of being the guy that goes and puts the deal together. It's just part of the risk. Yep. So for those that are listening, a few people might be interested. So before we get, you know, down our rabbit holes of the interview and the conversations, you want to talk about the deal we're doing? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Let's talk about it. You want me to you want me to cover it or you want to go with it? Yeah, go ahead. So the the deal that we're doing, I wish I wish I'd actually thought about it because I would have had an image that I could put up right here, but it is a fifty seven thousand square foot outdoor food hall and event venue. And the reason that I say outdoor food hall is that it's it's not your typical food hall. Um, they are actually walk up counters that have seating outside. Um, and there's a little bit of seating inside as well, but it's kind of centered around this lawn. I mean, the whole point is that it's a post-COVID development. And what we want to um, really celebrate is outdoors and social distancing. Uh, but we're also celebrating startups and entrepreneurs. So every suite on site, I think the largest, the largest space that we have is the event venue. That's probably 6,000, you know, 7,000 square feet. But the largest retail space that we have is currently about 2,000 square feet. And in a 57,000 square foot, um, you know, project, you know, most people would have much larger suites than that. But we're kind of going for that startup entrepreneur type of um, type of feel. And so we've got suites as low as, you know, 150 to 165 square feet. Most of the restaurant spaces are actually 400 square feet, give or take. Uh, and the retail goes anywhere from 400 to probably 800 square feet. So it's a little uh, it's a little all over the place. Yeah, it is a cool uh, development. Like you said, you know, we're trying to develop something that even if we get hit with another pandemic, because by the time this thing comes online, we'll be well past COVID, right? We've got vaccines flowing now. So we're going to be past COVID in 12 to 18 when this thing comes online. But one other thing that we've done is we are we always look around. What can we do to differentiate ourselves? And what can we do that maybe somebody hasn't done yet? Everybody's starting podcasts. Everybody's being told to start a meetup, but there's not good podcasting or meetup spaces uh, that, that are readily made for people. So we're going to purpose build a few rooms and spaces that are set up specifically for podcasting and uh, general space that really is suited to holding meetups. So we're seeing what's going on around us. We're providing some of that at the property where we're creating an offload lane or a drop-off lane, if you will, out front, because we know a lot of people were, uh, you know, younger people, they're more of this gig economy. They're not wanting to buy much of anything. They want to pay somebody else to drive them around town, right? So you're gonna have a lot of Lyft and Uber and those kind of ride-sharing people drop people off at the restaurant or the retail spot here. So we're creating a drop-off space to accommodate a lot of that. So. A lot of thought has gone into this. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's what's interesting is we actually started off this development as an apartment complex. I mean, we were going to build, you know, right around 200 multifamily units. And we went down to Huntsville, this development called Stove House, which is where I got the inspiration for this project. And I, you know, I actually went down there with the same architect and I said, Jamie, I think we need to uh, I think we need to completely scrap our plans and start all over. This is exactly what Nashville needs. And he, he looked at me and he goes, I completely agree. Uh, you know, there's just nothing like it in Nashville. And so, um, you know, that's 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 what one of the most exciting parts about it. And then almost serendipitously, I mean, after after we changed the plans, two more apartment projects get announced right next door and one across the street. So we already had a couple hundred units going in next door to us. On the other side, there's a group that's got the land under contract for over 400 more multifamily units. And then across the streets, another, I think it's over 150 at least, probably, probably a couple hundred. So pretty exciting to see. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of rooftops going in right next to this that, you know, all these people will be able to walk to. 
Yeah, I, I agree. It worked up beautifully. There was enough absorption or let's call it enough demand for a lot of apartment communities in Nashville. And it would have been fine had we continued down that road. But, you know, you're always look for, looking for highest and best use of space. And I think this was a much better use of that space. So I, I think we've done a really good job of, again, seeing what's going on around and what do those, re, uh, those uh, residential people need that are coming to the neighborhood. They need places to shop. They need places to get a coffee, maybe have a beer, uh, have dinner. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be really, really well done. Um, I think you said in the show notes you're going to have a link to get to the uh, to the offering if anybody's interested. But just a high level and we can move on. It is for accredited investors. Uh, it's what's called a 506C offering. So you have to be accredited to participate. But our projection is 20% IRR within you know the first three to five years. It's a wide range, right? Because we like to be very conservative. And it might take us five years, but I really think it'll be closer to the three or four year timeline to hit that 20% IRR. But it's a really good return. Try to get money back into investors' hands as quickly as we can. Um, and all of us make money together. So, you know, go click on the link if you're interested. Absolutely. Yep. We will leave that uh, in the show notes below. It's probably not in there currently, but if you're watching the show after we've been live um, or you're listening to the podcast, um, it will be in the show notes on the YouTube channel. Um, just search for episode 002. Who is Tyler Cobble? Yep. So kind of th that's what we're up to. And now that we had our little pitch fest, right? I hate doing that stuff, but I want people to know about the fun stuff that we're doing. Yeah. Um, so today is all about you, brother. So you know, last week we went through who am I, how did I get to where I am and what. So now we're going to do it to you. So why don't you start, you know, most people probably know who you are, but some don't. Start with your background. How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What was life for you like, you know, as a 10 to 12 year old? I mean, what was your mindset? What was your environment? Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, that, that'll be interesting. I mean, if you listen to the episode last week, you'll notice that Bruce and I kind of have I mean, not kind of, we had completely different upbringings. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I was spoiled by any means, but I grew up not wanting for anything. I had a, uh, you know, great family. Um, and I had a wonderful grandparents that were always there to support us. So, you know, we, I grew up in a 6,000 square foot house, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the opposite, um, experience that, that Bruce had. And I think honestly, you know, that's, that's probably one of the more interesting dynamics that we have is, is that we've, even though we have these completely different back backgrounds, we, we came to the same point. And, you know, I think that that's one of the reasons that we work so well together um, is that we kind of bring a different viewpoint, but we are aiming for the same thing. So anyway, I, um, I'm actually a Nashville native. There's not a whole lot of us left out there. Um, I uh, grew up going to private school and uh, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was like two years old. So uh, my dad moved back to Texas, didn't really grow up with him at all. Um, and then uh, about when I was six or seven, my mom got remarried. And so my stepdad actually ended up raising us. And he was in commercial real estate. He was a developer. So I had zero interest in it growing up, even though he took me out to, to ride dirt bikes on a, on a site that he was developing um, out in Hendersonville. And, you know, I, I remember all that kind of stuff, which is, which is, you know, that was the fun stuff for me. He was building um, a neighborhood that ended up having about a thousand um, single family homes in it. And uh, yeah, we got out there and, and rode dirt bikes. So, you know, when I was, uh, I guess, probably 
I guess I was 16, um, or well, really when I was 15, my mom got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so that was, that was really tough on me growing up. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, she's, she's totally fine now. Um, she's, it's been, you know, 13, 14 years that she's gotten clear scans. So couldn't be more grateful than for that, to be honest with you. Um, but you know, it was that, you know, when I was 15 and then 16, uh, parents got divorced. So, um, you know, I no longer really associated with the man that raised me. Right. I mean, he was my stepdad. We, I called him dad. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was pretty hard, but it, it really, um, I'm the oldest sibling, um, of all of my, uh, I've got six brothers and sisters because parents got divorced, both got remarried and have more children. Um, but it very quickly thrust me into a, a sink or swim situation, right? So, you know, my mom, um, is still recovering from everything and I'm not going to be a financial burden on my family. So, you know, it's every summer um, since I was 12, I actually worked uh, in construction for my grandfather. And when I say worked in construction, I was the kid that held the shovel and dug ditches. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, but it was fun. And they gave me a sledgehammer and I was the guy that just went in there and started knocking down walls. I mean, I, I wasn't skilled by any means, um, but I loved working with my grandfather every summer. And it, it taught me a lot about real estate and construction uh, you know, it was, it was really fascinating, um, to me always. And so, um, when I went to college or I'm sorry, when I graduated high school, I actually got into, into sales. I sold knives for Cutco. And that was one of the most pivotal moments of my life because that's when I learned, okay, I can sell, I could sell the hell out of some knives, right? And these are just kitchen knives. So, uh, you know, I, I got my hands, um, on every knife that I could so that when I went on these appointments, I could sell, you know, the largest knife sets. And, um, you know, I, uh, I broke every sales record I could get my hands on. Um, you know, I think the average Cutco rep sells about $3,000 in their lifetime. And I sold well over $200,000 in about 15 months. So wow. I was really, really rolling with it. And uh, I loved it. I had so much fun doing that, but they had phenomenal sales training. And so, you know, I kind of had this raw natural talent already because, it was super easy for me to just have conversations with people, but then you add that in with psychology and, and sales tactics and, you know, it's like adding a match to, to gasoline. So did really well with that. Went to uh, the university of Tennessee and I went to an incredible high school in, in Nashville. Um, and I'm, you know, super grateful for that experience. MBA taught me a lot, um, about, you know, not just, you know, how to learn, um, but, you know, how to be a gentleman, scholar, athlete. That was the, the whole, um, the mantra there. And that, honestly, I learned more in high school than I did in college. And that really started to show uh, when I went to college, I, uh, I couldn't stand it. I didn't enjoy it one bit. I didn't realize how much I enjoyed, like, really being challenged and, you know, it's funny, like I went to FRA before I went to MBA. So MBA starts seventh through 12th. And I went to FRA before that, which is where my mom went. And I was a and d student at FRA, which was, you know, it's still a, it's a great private school, but MBA is notoriously one of the most difficult academical, uh, you know, schools in the state of Tennessee and possibly the Southeast. I mean, probably one of the top in the Southeast. And so uh, the only reason I got in is because one of the uh, major donors at MBA wrote a letter uh, basically telling them to let me in. And I was an A and B student at MBA. 
I mean, I, I graduated with a 3-4, which is not all that great, but I was good at school. And it's amazing how, how you know, uh, having the right teachers in the right environment can really change that for you. Um, but when I went to when I went to college, completely different. I mean, the level of education at the University of Tennessee was just nowhere near what I was getting in high school. And in fact, my English teacher actually brought me in uh, one day after I wrote a paper and accused me of plagiarism. She was like, "There's no way that a freshman at the University of Tennessee could write a paper like this." And I was like, "Well, you know." So NBA, uh, so the Dead Poets Society. Have you ever seen that movie, Bruce? Oh, great movie. Yeah. So you know that's based on NBA. That's based on my high school. No, I did not know that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really cool. Um, it's based on a teacher that was at NBA, um, and I think an NBA graduate actually. By Robin Williams. Do what? You were taught by Robin Williams. Oh yeah, yeah. Getting <laughs> up on the desk and you know playing playing Patch Adams. Yeah, that's I was. Cool. That, that'd be hilarious. Um, so so to tell you, like that's kind of the the background that I came from. It was a very. Um, <laughs> you know, English driven school. So we wrote six papers a year, six, five to six page papers a year from seventh grade to 12th grade. So I had, you know, 30 plus papers that I could, you know, prove like, this is my writing. I've been doing this for so long. So obviously got clear to that. Um, but you know, I was sitting in geology class one day, which was a class that I had to take and sitting there going, why do I need to know about pyroclactic flow? when this is not going to apply to anything that I want to do with my life. And it was something that I had learned in eighth grade. And that in combination with the fact that I wasn't making any money anymore because I wasn't doing, I wasn't able to do sales. I was having to do school. Uh, the university of Tennessee's football program was horrible. I mean, it was just, we lost every game we could possibly get our hands on. I think we lost to, you know, Vanderbilt and the university of Kentucky for the first time in like 20 years. And then my fraternity got kicked off campus. So I was like, there's literally no point in being at college. So much to the chagrin of my family, I dropped out. And I hung out in Knoxville. Uh, so I finished my freshman year, dropped out uh, about a month into my uh, first semester, my sophomore year. Hung out in Knoxville and worked on a, on a startup. Um, I had this idea that um, you know, the fraternity, the Greek system was really fragmented. You know, you buy your t-shirts over here and you'd pay your dues over there. And, you know, you'd schedule uh, parties and events over here and you'd, it, it was just very broken up. And so the thought was, well, we'll create one website that will integrate all of these into one place. And it won't serve as a social platform by any means, but it will become the platform for Greek life. And so I worked on that for a bit, ended up bringing in the wrong partner to develop, uh, so I learned that early on. Do not bring in a partner um, that uh, you just give equity to until their portion of the deal uh, is completed. Have them earn it. So that that fell apart. Um, I ended up moving back to Nashville. Kind of bummed it out for a couple of months at my mom's place. I was still living off of some money that I'd made at Cutco and literally just was sleeping in until 10 or 11 and waking up and doing nothing all day. Uh, till she kicked my ass out of the house and said, you're getting a job and you're moving out. Um, so I went to work for my grandfather and I was doing project management and construction again. And I did that for about three months before I, my, my former stepdad actually reached out to me. He heard I was back in town and uh, he knew that I was good at sales. And so he said, look, we've got, you know, a, a 150,000 square foot shopping center anchored by Target. And we've got a 57,000 square foot office building in Midtown. And 
This is in 2013. So we were coming out of the recession. Both of those properties had about 30% vacancy, which for class B, B plus properties is really high. I mean, that's a problem. So, you know, he said, look, I'm not getting the attention that I need or deserve from these national firms because they've got all these other listings. I want to bring somebody in-house to work solely on these projects and, and stabilize them for me. So I had to have a tough conversation with my grandfather because, you know, I was, I was planning on taking over his company and cause you know, he founded it in 1972 and grew up working in it. And, um, you know, it meant, it meant so much to me, um, to be able to work with him and to, uh, you know, think about the legacy that I would be able to continue, continue on. And, um, you know, I just kind of posed it to him. I said, look, what do you think? Because, you know, at this point I hadn't been, I hadn't spoken to my mom's ex-husband for years and, uh, you know, but it seemed like a pretty good opportunity. And, and my grandfather was like, no, you gotta go, you gotta go do this. That's, that's a great opportunity. It's a great offer. Um, you know, you can always come back and work with me if it doesn't work out. So, um, I, that's how I got into commercial real estate. Um, he paid for me to get my license and gave me that shopping center and that office building to, to go lease. And so, you know, day one, I'll never forget walking into the office and uh, going, okay, cool, I've uh, got my license, so what do I do now? And he was just like, um, go find me a tenant and I'll show you what to do. And I was like, okay, great. So I just literally started knocking on doors. So you went from cut calling your training program to just bring me somebody and figure it out. Oh yeah. I went from like regimented structure, which I, I loved. I, I, I was on my own, but I kind of thrived having a manager, like kind of a coach. I mean, that's really what my, my manager was at, uh, at Cutco, um, to just hey, go do your own thing, figure it out. Like, you know, push me off the boat, no life, no life preserver, just figure out how to swim. Um, so I started knocking on doors and cold calling and we ended up, um, you know, it took me six months before I made a dollar, which was kind of tough, but that's part of commercial real estate. Honestly, um, that was, that was sooner than most people make money in commercial real estate. Typically, if you start off as a broker, you shouldn't expect to make any money for the first six to 12 months. So, you know, um, from that respect, uh, I think I did pretty well, but, um, you know, that first year I made $40,000 in commissions, which was detrimental to me. I mean, it was the most disappointing thing that could have possibly ever happened because I'm looking at it going, okay, well, I, I made $80,000, $100,000 last year selling knives. Like I'll easily make six figures selling, you know, commercial real estate. I'll come, I'm going to come out and crush it my first year. I'm going to be a millionaire by my second year and just not even remotely close. Um, my second year, I was looking at my tax return. I made $40,500. I made literally $500 more than I did the year before. What? How and, old were you? Uh, this, uh, at this point, I'm 22. Okay. I'm 22. So I started, I, st I started in commercial real estate when I was 21. And, you know, this, so think about that. Like I'm 22. I've dropped out of college. I'm making $40,000 a year. And I'm watching all of my friends graduate. And I've just made $40,000 a year two years in a row. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I got really like depressed because I started thinking, man, I've really screwed up my life. I mean, all of my friends are graduating with degrees. Um, I'm making no money. And, um, 
you know, maybe I did really, maybe I did really make a mistake by dropping out. You know, when I dropped out, I was so confident in what I was going to do. And so that, that was, that was a little tough, but, um, instead of crying about it, uh, my, you know, I decided to kind of kick my ass into gear. So I ended up, um, doing everything that I possibly could. Cause up until that point, I had only been focused on those two properties. I wasn't really going out and meeting other people in the industry. I wasn't meeting other brokers. I wasn't talking to other developers. I wasn't talking to property owners. And so I said, you know what, this year is going to be the year of networking. I'm going to go out and I'm going to meet everyone. I'm going to join every, you know, chamber there is. I'm going to join every entrepreneur organization there is. And I joined BNI. And that year I tripled my uh, business networking international. It was a um, it's like everybody in that group has their own chair. So like I was the only commercial real estate broker, right? There was a, a landscaping guy and there was an HVAC technician and there was a, a general contractor. So, you know, the whole point was everybody, you know, gets to know each other really well so that you trust each other and can send referrals because everybody's out there. You know, basically it's your own sales team. And so, you know, that year when I joined the chamber, I joined the entrepreneur center, I joined, you know, all these organizations tripled my income. I mean, tripled it, like just effortlessly. I wasn't doing anything different other than just meeting people and talking to them and telling them what I did. And so that to me was like, man, that's, that's the secret right there. You don't need to work harder, just work smarter, get out and market better and talk to people. And so that's when I kind of started getting into, you know, the whole branding side of what I do. And, and that's ended up becoming one of the biggest things that I've ever done, right? Um, I grew the beard. And, uh, it ended up sticking and like, you know, commercial real estate. Yeah. The glasses, it works. Same thing. That yeah. and this, my, yeah. I don't have a beard. I'm 52 and I can't grow one, but I'm known for scruff. That's fine. You got to have the stubble. It looks good. Yep. So I, uh, you know, every time I would go into these events, you know, I'm the young guy with the beard, right? Like everybody else is 50s, 60s, white guy and clean shaven, wearing a suit. And that's just never been, that's just never been who I am. Like I, you know, I kind of grew up in that Bell Mead, blue blood kind of, of, uh, you know, arena, but that's just not me. You know, I, I've got a beard, I'm covered in tattoos. I live in East Nashville, which is like the Brooklyn or the Portland of Nashville. It's kind of where all the cool F and B is and all the hipsters are. And, and, and the shirt you know, unbuttoned up there everywhere you go. We, we show the chest hair, we wear flat bells. It's totally cool. <laughs> Um, it's funny. I actually hopped on a call yesterday with a, a, uh, a digital design consultant that we're working with on one of our projects out of Atlanta. And I'd only had phone calls with her and she was like, you look nothing like what we thought you were going to look like. <laughs> uh, cause I just, I don't look like your typical commercial real estate guy. So, um, I actually appreciated that. I, thought, I took that as a compliment. So, um, at this point, about two, two, three years into, into working, I'd stabilized those two properties and worked myself out of a job. I was like, oh no, if I don't go out and start doing something else, like I'm not gonna make any money this year. Um, so that's when I started taking on third-party work. I started representing tenants that were looking for space. Um, the first company I ever did was a staffing company. Um, and I took them to a shopping center out in Hermitage, which is you know, about 10, 15 minutes east of Nashville. And I'll never forget like over-preparing for that one because I was like, I'm not gonna mess this up. This is the first one I've ever done and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that was fine. I started taking on third party landlord work. So I started doing leasing, um, for, for other people. And, um, you know, up to this point, 
I was at a boutique development firm. They just happened to own some commercial real estate. So every week for two, three years, I was sitting in on construction and development meetings. And so I kind of learned how to put together a development deal. So I found a piece of dirt um, actually out in Bellevue, um, 2.71 acres over off of Highway 70 South. And, um, you know, started talking to the, to, you know, my mom's ex-husband. I was like, Hey, what do you think about this? I think that we could build some townhomes here. Cause that's what they were mostly doing was townhomes. And, you know, I think the price for the dirt makes sense. I think the dirt's like the last flat piece of dirt in Bellevue. Bellevue is like notoriously hilly if you're not familiar with Bellevue. And it took a, a long time, but we ended up negotiating with the owner um, to sell it to us at a reasonable price. And I put my first development deal together. Uh, the, the site was already entitled for 57 units. We could not fit 57 townhomes on there. We ended up fitting 42 townhomes. And uh, the deal worked. We put together these beautiful... So Bellevue is kind of a, a sleepy suburb of Nashville. It's probably 10 minutes outside of town. And it's, it's notoriously where a lot of millennials and young families live. So, you know, we, I had this idea of like, let's build a townhome that's designed around millennials. You know, so, so it's two bedrooms, um, two and a half baths, and it's much smaller than your average townhome. Because most townhomes, you know, they're 1,800, 2,200 square feet. Um, they're three stories and you know, they're, they can be on the more expensive side. Well, because we were able to do an 1100 square foot product, it was 1105 square feet. Um, we were selling it for, you know, I think we started at $230,000 a unit, which is an insane number. If you think about new construction in Nashville now, uh, that's so cheap, but back then that's over $200 a foot on a product in a suburb. That's not that hot. So what did it cost you to build those? It cost me $95 a foot bricks and sticks to build that. We bought, we bought the dirt for about a million. And I think my site development cost me about 1.1 or 1.2. So we were all in on that project at about five or 6 million. And we ended up exiting at about 10 or 11. So it, it, it was a really good project. Right. Um, so talk about that for a second. So you basically, you little more than doubled your money. It sounds like you drove it up about 110, 115%. Was that, we talked a little bit about this last week, was that the the pure numbers? Was there debt involved? So was your return even higher than that? How did that work? Yeah, so that was one part that I um, wasn't 100% involved in, which, you know, really frustrated me. Um, you know, my mom's ex, ex-husband just, he didn't want me to learn the finance side because, I mean, obviously, if I learned how to do the finance side of it, I knew how to do everything else. Why, do, why would I need him necessarily to do a deal? That's how right. he looked at it. That's not how I looked at it at all. Um, and so, you know, I, there was definitely debt on it. I met with the bank a couple of times. I had the loan docs. Um, but you know, I, I was never involved in any of those discussions. So, you know, the way that that firm worked, um, which works for some people and, and it, to me, I would never do this, but there were two partners that self-funded every deal. They'd never raised capital. They never worked with investors and they took all of the, you know, not only the, the operational risk on themselves, they took the financial risk too. And I think that's good for some people, like I said, but I, you know, to me, you, you can't scale that. Like there's, there's a certain point where you just don't have enough capital to go do another deal until you've sold out of this deal. And, and right. So- right. So yeah, you, it's easier to be frank with people that are listening. It's much easier because there's not, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 people in the deal that you have to manage. 
and communicate with. But yeah, the big part, if you really want to grow something like Tyler and I are and have, you really need other people on your team. And that a lot of times are limited investors. So yeah, I like what you said there, that it, it, enabled you, it, it, it enables you to scale. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, I, uh, I didn't know any better, right? Like, I just thought this is how you do development deals. You have to make, you know, a hell of a lot of money on your own. And then you have to put all of that money into one deal and you got to hope that it works. Right. So, you know, which again, is fine for some people, but um, so yeah, we had debt on it. I would imagine, you know, I think we paid, uh, we probably paid cash for the dirt. Um, and then we used that as leverage, um, with, uh, on the construction loan. Gotcha. So, so kind of like what we're doing with, um, with the provision area, the deal that we were talking about earlier, we're going to buy the land and then we're going to use that as leverage, um, you know, when we go get the construction loan. So, you know, we, um, I would imagine that that million bucks, um, give or give or take was about what we were in it for. So, I mean, you can run the margins on that. You know, there's a $5 million differential, whatever 7% costs are. I mean, it was a pretty good, it was a pretty good run. It was a good profit on that deal. Yeah. Well, you a little more than doubled based on what you just said there, you potentially had a four or a five X return because you maybe only had a million, even a million five and you make a five to $6 million profit guys. That's why we use safe levels of leverage because it changes your, your return structure completely. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, if we had paid all cash for that, we probably would have taken the, the arguably quote unquote safer route, but we would have only doubled our money. Whereas, you know, we had a million dollars into it and we used leverage. We had to pay off the debt and we had to carry the debt. And, you know, that's, that goes on the balance sheets, but you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, four or five X our money. So, you know, I would rather four or five X my money and take a little bit of the financial risk than, you know, play it safe and put all of my eggs into one basket. Because, you know, what that allows you to do is instead of having five or $6 million tied up in one deal, you can have a million dollars tied up in five or six deals. Exactly. That's where I was going next. It's not only that you get a better return, but now you can leverage Instead of one deal, now you could do five deals. So each deal might pay you a little less, but you add all five deals together, and my lord, now you're talking serious money. That's exactly right, and you're spreading out your risk, right? Yep. I mean, if one deal fails, which you know there's always that potential, it's real estate. Something something can always happen, right? If one deal fails, you're totally fine. If you have five or six deals going, if one deal fails and all of your money's in that one deal you know, it's kind of tough for you to come out of that. And it's it's kind of like why you would buy multifamily as opposed to a single family home. You have 10 renters move out of a 200 unit apartment complex and you are totally fine. You don't even hardly notice it. You have 10 renters move out of a 10 plex, you are in a lot of trouble. So it just right. you know, mitigates so, a risk. That's another really important thing that you mentioned there that look, you said, you know, if one goes down, if we lose on one, we still have four or five others contributing. So I want everybody to hear that neither one, Tyler or I, have ever lost money in real estate. But we always approach it assuming it could happen. There could be another black swan event that we just can't prepare for, like Corona. Corona could have been worse from a financial standpoint than it has been. It's been bad, but it could have been worse, right? So we always go into it assuming there's a chance that things can go wrong beyond our control, so I love that you said that, that again, we've never, ever lost money. I don't think we ever will, 
but there's always that potential. So thanks for mentioning that. That's right. I mean, you know, the worst deal I've ever done ended up getting my investors an 8% return, you know, yeah. and it was like, you know, I had the kind of the same story that you had last week where you're like waking up in the middle of the night, sweating and crying and like trying to figure out what you're going to do for your investors. And I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, and I promise these guys a much higher return. And it's like, dude, no one cares. We're getting 8% on our money. That's, I mean, you know, the deal, the deal did not hit where it hit where you, we all thought it was going to, but we decided to invest with you and we believe in you and you're still getting 8%. Like that's better than just almost any other investment, you know, vehicle. So, you know, that worked out, that worked out well. So, you know, obviously developments take a long time. I mean, we were working on that for probably two, two and a half years. So in the meantime, um, you know, I'm still selling commercial real estate, building my brand there. And um, I actually started working on a $110 million development up in Hendersonville next door to that shopping center that we were working on. The, the, the company still had, I don't know, 20 or 25 acres remaining. And so I was kind of, you know, helping master plan that we were going for this beautiful mixed use, you know, it was almost, I mean, honestly, it would have been ahead of its time back then because we were kind of going for this micro unit style like you know we're gonna have small apartments with smaller retail and smaller office space you know because we were thinking well the hendersonville market you know that's you know we don't want anything too big right because we we had a world market and world market was struggling they came back to us every month and this is back in you know 15 16 they're like yeah we we're probably not going to renew we don't you know we need you to lower our rent and we we're like we're not going to do that we're, we're just not going to do that and so world market ended up moving out, but you know, that's just part of big box retail, right? Like, you know, that, that side of the investment world is dying. Um, but we were working on that, that development. And then, you know, things got sideways on the townhome deal. Um, basically we finished it out and, um, they didn't want to pay me my share and I didn't have everything in writing that I thought. Um, you know, I didn't have the money when I was 25 to hire a legal team to put together operating agreements and all that stuff. And to be fair, it's, you know, part of it's on me because they had told me, look, if you want to memorialize this partnership, you need to pay for the agreements. And looking back, that's so unfair because they, they knew that I didn't have the money to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, when it, when it closed out, I was like, well, where's my share? And he, I'll never forget this. He, I have it literally in writing. He said, if you want your money, you're going to have to sue me. And I was just blown away um, and couldn't believe that. So obviously left, um, you know, overnight we, I, we had had issues before. And so my grandfather actually had a real estate company. He had his license. So he had renewed it. And um, cause you know, we had been preparing for a little bit that something might happen. And, um, this was, you know, four and a half years into it. It finally did. Um, so I, I moved my license to my grandfather's brokerage, changed the brokerage to the cobble group. And literally the next week I closed a deal. So, you know, it was, it was off to the races and, you know, I consulted an attorney, uh, several attorneys, and I had everything in writing because we had communicated all of the agreements through email and in Tennessee, a contract, you know, anything in writing that's agreed upon by two parties is a contract. And they said, look, you have a case, you will win. Um, I mean, by my estimate, my share of, of that development was at least $250,000. And keep in mind, I'm 26. So like, that's life-changing money. But what they said was, you know, this is going to drag on for two or three years. 
you know, you're going to be in, in a lawsuit suing them for two or three years and you already don't have any money. Um, and so, you know, I found an attorney that was willing to take it on contingency and I, uh, eventually just woke up one morning and I was like, you know what? I don't want to wake up every morning with a sick feeling in my stomach. So I let it go. I ended up not pursuing um, the legal recourse that everybody thought that I could. It was a really difficult decision for me to make because again, it's life changing money. Um, But it was the best decision I could have ever made because instead of focusing my next two or three years on that one lawsuit and trying to get, you know, that, that one lump, sum of cash, I started my own company. Six months later, I started a commercial property management company. And that's, that's been the most life-changing thing for me was starting my own ventures. Well, and you said that you let it go and, you know, you just had to write it off and $250,000 is a lot. And I, that's absolutely true for anybody, no matter what stage of life you're in, much less 26 years old. But, you know, my role a lot of on this podcast we talked about last time is going to be mindset. But think about that. I had a similar situation about three years ago. Somebody sued me and they were wrong and they were accusing me of stuff that I knew I was right on. I could have fought them forever, but we just decided to settle and move on. And I was sitting with a guy at, uh, at a happy hour one night and he wanted to go burn the dude's dog and kick his house for him. Like, Dude, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm, I've moved on. This is my best friend, right? So I said, I've moved on. And he said, oh, no, no, you can't do that. I was like, the longer I let that human being take up residence in my brain, he still controls me. Yep. If you hadn't have walked away like you did, which is emotionally tough, it's egotistically tough because he got me. He won. No, you win if you can move through your life. And now you're a bigger success than you would have been if you kept beating that horse to death. His shit will come back and bite him in the ass someday if it hasn't already. Don't, you can't worry about them. You got to learn time to move on, time to cut my losses and go. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you want to know the amazing thing. Um, you know, you and I have discussed this before, but, you know, I started the firm in February of uh, 2018. Bought my first building that month. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I bought my first building in 2019. So uh, I closed on two more in June, and I believe it was by July of 2019. So within a year and a half of leaving, I went from zero net worth and probably negative because I'm sure I owed a lot of taxes because when you're a commercial real estate broker, you get 1099, you forget about taxes, you spend money, you probably shouldn't. Um, So I had to catch up on a lot of taxes. Went from a zero or possibly negative net worth um, to by the time I was 27, I was a millionaire. And it, it was, it was incredibly liberating to realize like one, how easy commercial real estate can be. If you're with the right people, if you're working with the right people and you're, you're approaching it the right way. Uh, But two, to think, man, if he never screwed me out of $250,000, I would probably still be working for them, making 60 grand a year, happy as a clam. It's silver linings, right? There's always some sort of silver, silver lining, no matter how bad you think it is. First of all, it could be worse, but you have to take all that, you know, pardon my language, but you take that kick in the nuts and you think, okay, how do I pivot and make this work for me? I'll never forget the day my wife and I were in Park City, Utah. We're uh, there for the month of August last year in 2019. The three of us, you, me, and her 
or on a phone call. When you actually called us, we're out for a walk or out for a hike. And uh, we had been talking to you about a week or two later about how valuation of a business works and everything. And I remember, so you called about a week, week and a half later and said, hey, I got great news. I'm like, oh, good. You've got us a building. You've got us a building. <laughs> no, because you understood how to properly value a company. Now you're like, I'm actually a millionaire. I'm like, ah, oh, that, that was one of the coolest calls. I'll be honest. It wasn't for me. It was for you. But that was honestly one of the best calls I've ever received in my life. That was so amazing. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I was so fired up. I mean, you were obviously the first person I called. Like, I, don't, I, I was like, I don't know who else I could share this with. I'm calling Bruce right now. And it was, it was so now, cool. Sorry, I'm keep doing this. But see, that's another key point. You didn't know who else you could share that with. So, guys, I want you to put yourself in Tyler's head, in his situation. What would happen to you if you were in his situation and you realized that I am now worth a million? Or I sold a property and made $100,000. Do the people that you spend the majority of your time with, are they people you can share that win with? This is a momentous thing in your life. And if the answer is no, you might have really good people in your life. But my guys, my, my, my friends, I'm telling you, you have to elevate the people you're hanging around. You need to be hanging around people that are having similar successes in their lives. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And if you spend your time with people that work for minimum wage, they're good people, but that's not helping you thrive and succeed. And you have nobody you can share these amazing experiences with. So that that that's a really big takeaway from this. I hope people get. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what I was going to say. You're you're the average of the five people that you you know surround yourself with. You know, I. You know, I that and I learned that a couple of years ago, and that's when I kind of separated my friends, right? And it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's just, it's kind of part of growing up, but everybody ends up having different interests and that's totally fine. Like I still love and appreciate my friends from high school and, you know, my buddies from college and whoever I grew up with. And some of them are, are they're in that, you know, empire mindset. I'm building something huge and, and this is where I want to go. And, you know, those are the guys that, you know, I can hang out by the pool and have a conversation about, you know, on a Saturday having a drink in my hand, like, let's talk about investing in real estate. And that's, that's one of the greatest things ever. And then I've got some buddies, it's like, we catch up every now and then and we grab a drink and that, you know, all we talk about is more social stuff. And that's totally fine. But you know, at, at some point, I kind of started limiting how much I was doing that. Like, man, I'm 28, right? Most of my friends are still going out and partying on the weekends, playing video games. I don't do any of that. I mean, look, I'll go out and I'll have drinks every now and then. But you know, what gets me excited is like waking up at five on a Saturday to start underwriting another deal. Like that's what really gets me excited. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm very intentional about the people that I surround myself with now. And you know, that, that, that was one of the greatest things ever. Like I couldn't share the fact that I became a millionaire at 27 with my high school friends. Cause they're, you know, yeah, you're, you're the douchebag friend at that point. Exactly. They're like, okay, cool. Brag about it. It's like, I'm really not trying to brag. I mean, I don't go around saying, you know, Hey, I'm Tyler Cobble. I'm a millionaire. That's cause that's ridiculous. But you know, it is a milestone that everybody wants to hit at some point, And it's a huge milestone and you should, you should celebrate that. And you should feel okay sharing that with, with the right people. And so that's why I called Bruce. <laughs> exactly. But also how many of you listening now have the same mindset that Tyler has. He can't wait to wake up Saturday morning and work, start to, yeah. to work, work, 
most of it, I was this person until I was 42 years old. Dude, you start talking to me about work when I wasn't at work. I'm like, oh, I started to hyperventilate and have cold chills. I'm like, I hated my life and my job so much. Wouldn't you rather be where Tyler is? He wakes up on a Saturday at five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning because he can't wait to start over again. Dude, it's such a better place to be mentally. And if people will, you know, get over their fear. And I know some people will have a family and kids that you didn't have. So it was a little easier for you to be in this position. But you got to do what you got to do to get to the position Tyler is now in because it, it just changes your life. You don't dread your life. You aren't miserable, depressed. Low. So anyway, sorry, tangent there. But that was another thing that you said that really struck me. Well, but I think that's true, right? I mean, I tell people, you know, I think I'm the most boring person ever because they're like, so what do you do outside of real estate? And I'm like, man, you know, I, I go camping and I might kayak every now and then. But honestly, like I, I do real estate 24-7. Like this is all I think about. All I, all I do, I go on walks. I listen to podcasts about real estate. I go into the office. I talk about real estate. I call Bruce on a Sunday night at nine o'clock, and I'm like, "Hey, I just had this idea. What do you think?" And he's like, "Stop calling me at nine yeah, o'clock at night." And then, like, I'll, I'll again tomorrow, I think yeah. I'm going to remain to this. <laughs> like, it sounds really good. Two bourbons deep. Call me tomorrow. Let's see if I have the same opinion. <laughs> so, so now you know, you know you've come a long. Yeah, exactly. But you've come a long way now. You now you're doing these big development deals. You know, you're a baller. You're the mayor of East Nashville. So <laughs> your your story is different than mine. But, you know, there are there are commonalities. But I want to talk about a few things that you said. Yeah. And, you know, I don't dig deep, more deeply in here. So one thing that you said that, you know, it goes back to, you know, walking away from that lawsuit that you could have filed. You know, you had the wrong partner on more than one deal. It sounds like maybe two different times it's happened. Oh, yeah. Happened to me. But again, you get into a deal with somebody that doesn't go well or somebody does you wrong, not only do you walk away from the lawsuit, maybe that's gone. It It's over. You have to move on. You have to be able to get up and keep yourself moving. So that was, that was huge. You know, you didn't wallow in self pity and most people, that's just what they want to do. They start drinking, they start doing recreational drugs, they, whatever to, to like, Nope, it happened. Hell with it. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to keep going. Yeah. I mean, I've just always had, you know, and I'm, I, I understand and recognize that I'm very fortunate to just naturally have this mindset, but it's like, a, all right, okay, cool. Time to move on. Let's step over that hurdle and uh, keep going. Right. There's sitting and wallowing is not going to do anything about it. I mean, it, you know, you can be upset and, and, you know, but give yourself a certain amount of time to, to be upset you know, like, look, five minutes, I'm going to scream and I'm going to yell about it. And I'm going to bitch and I'm going to cry. After that five minutes, move on. It's not productive. It's not going to do anything for you. Sounds like, you know, how Elrod, that's, that's his right. five minutes. I was right? say, I, I, remember, I think we were talking to him at the same time when he was yep. bringing that up that, that over at dinner. He said, look, I got the five minute rule, guys. I can bitch, moan, whine, complain, be depressed, be pissed all I want, but I only get five minutes. After five minutes, nothing else is going to change by me being pissed off at the world. So, I just have to consciously cut it off and move on. So yeah, that, that's a how Elrond thing. That's exactly it. I mean, it's, you know, I, I had that mindset without knowing that that was kind of the mindset, right? I mean, you know, after a certain amount, it's just cool. Move on. Let's go do the next thing. You live and you'll learn. I mean, you only fail if you don't take anything away from that. Right. And so, you know, now I had that happen twice and it's okay. 
all right, well, I don't deserve to be in a partnership with anybody unless I can afford to pay an attorney to, to put together an operating agreement that clearly delineates what every person in this deal is responsible for and how it's going to go down. And, you know, that's one of the great things about mine and Bruce's relationship. Every time we talk about a deal, it's like, look, just so that we're on the same page. And we do this all the damn time, all the time, even though we've, we've, you know, rehearsed it over and over again, you know, here's how it's going to go. Here's what you're responsible for. We're going to put up the money. You're going to reimburse us. Like, it's just, this is how it's going to go. And we're very clear and very open about that from day one. If you cannot have those conversations with your partner, they're not your partner. Like it's, it's, it's a marriage, right? Like if you can't have an open line of communication, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. But another thing you said too, was I think it was when you said you were 22 and some things didn't work out back then. And you said, man, what am I doing? I just screwed up my life. The thing I want people to understand there, and you were 22. I, I had that thought what sat in my mom's bedroom one night when I was scared I wasn't going to get a, get out of high school. And I said the same thing to my mom. I think I ruined my life. You thought you screwed your life up at 22, but you didn't. It's all perspective. First of all, you're 22. You're right. still crazy young. But I had a lady call me one day. She just wanted to kind of get some advice and tell me where she was and, you know, see if we were a good fit. She may want to invest with me in the future too. But she said, Bruce, you know, I'm just, I'm worried. I'm late in life. I'm, I'm 55, 56 years old. And, you know, time's running out. I said, okay, stop. You're going to make really dangerous, reckless decisions out of fear because you think you're running out of time. I told her straight up. I said, look, you're going to live another 60 to 80 years, maybe. You need to think about that. You're in your 50s. There's a good chance you're going to live into your hundreds with medical advances and we're all taking better care of ourselves. So, and we'll just upload you into the cloud anyway. It's, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> we're, 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 we'll have the matrix in our lifetimes. <laughs> <laughs> but just put yourself in perspective, put your life in perspective. I'm 30 and I haven't figured it out. So what? you got another 90 years maybe to live. It's okay. You know, don't, don't beat yourself up because things didn't click for you at 22 or even 30. Yeah. And that's one thing I have to constantly remind myself is, you know, there's, there's some statistic out there and I'm going to completely make it up because I don't know what it is exactly, but it's like 80% of billionaires don't come up with the idea that makes them a billionaire until they're in their fifties. Right. And so it's like, you know, yeah, but you know, yeah, maybe I'm 22 and I, I didn't actually ruin my life, but honestly, like that mentality is what has got, is what has made me so successful, right? Like I'm just driven to be as successful as I can possibly be. So the fact that I am not making six figures at 22 is the reason that I'm where I am today, because that, that was so detrimental to me. You know, I mean, I, I knew what it was like going from having everything to having nothing. And I told myself, I'm never going through that again. I'm never going to put myself through that. I'm never going to let that happen to my family again. And so that's why I am where I am today, because I have that like, we're going to go out, we're going to crush it. We're going to be incredibly successful mentality. And I, and you know, I think that that's, that's what you got to have. If you want to be successful in this business, you can, you can do well, you can make six figures and you can do just fine by kind of half-assing your way through it. That's the great thing about real estate is, you know, even a blind cat will catch a mouse every now and then, and you'll do, you'll do really well. But if you want to be next level successful, seven figures, you know, eight figures, nine figures, the 1% of your, you know, the 
you got to get out there and bust your ass and just have that mentality that no one's ever going to beat you. Right. So a couple of things there, the 1%, many people listening might not know this, but uh, to be part of the 1% on an earnings basis, you need to make roughly 40, $440,000 a year to be part of the 1%. So it's not as outlandishly big a number as you think. Now, don't get me wrong. That sounds like a douchebag, rich white guy talking, right? And, and I get it. I, I worked retail for forever. But again, it doesn't mean that to be a one percent, you have to make a million or $2 million a year. But you also talked about, I want to make as much money as I can possibly make or be as successful as I can possibly be. Do not apologize for being successful, people. Just don't do it. Don't let other people make you feel bad because you're successful. Now, if you're a piece of shit human being, okay, maybe feel bad about that. And maybe some of that led to your wealth, whatever. But don't feel that making a lot of money being a very large success in business or financially is a bad thing. A lot of people will try to tell you it is. They're wrong. All day, every day, they're wrong, right? Grant Cardone, you can like him or not like him. He's got a very polarizing personality that there's a lot about his personality I don't like, but he's got a lot of wisdom in the things he says. He says, you owe it to you, yourself, and your community and the world at large to be the most successful human being you can possibly be. Because the more successful you are, the more good you can do in the world. So again, I'm going to beat the shit out of this, but don't apologize for being successful. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. I mean, you know, there's, I've got some friends that are, you know, they're kind of along the lines of like anti-capitalism and, you know, capitalism's ruined the world. And, and, you know, I want to focus my time on charitable ventures and at heart, it's incredibly noble and it makes all the sense in the world. Right. But you can live in poverty and, and dedicate your life to charity. And at the end of the day, all you have, it, all that you're able to give is your time and effort. Right. And so what is that? 40 hours a week, you know, that you could, you could possibly do that. Well, what if you go out and you're incredibly successful in real estate, you make a million dollars a year and you donate $500,000 a year to charity. How about that? Like, that's how you have an impact. Right. And it's not just that, you know, going back to the time value you talked about with 40 hours a week. So I was uh, teaching a real estate um, class one night and a guy comes up to me at the end. He said, Bruce, man, this was great. I really liked it. But you're telling me you could teach me how to make a million dollars a year. Yes, sir. And uh, the issue with that? Well, that's just obscene. I'm like, why is that obscene? He said, look, I'm a, uh, an admitted hippie. We're in Austin, right? He said, I'm just a, a hippie chiropractor. I'm like, okay. And he said, well, I make about forty dollars to $50,000 a year doing it. And I said, well, but you tell me I can make a million. That's just obscene. There's so many people without. I was like, okay, so let's break that down. What is the, your favorite thing to do in life? He said, well, I do enjoy what I do, but once a year I get to take time away and go to a third world country, somewhere in South America, maybe Africa, and, you know, give away free chiropractic care for the week I'm there. Because everybody can use chiropractic care, but in third world countries, developing nations, they can't really afford it. So I go in for a week. I was like, that's phenomenal. Oh, my God, I love that. But how about if I could teach you how to make enough money that you could do that 51 weeks out of the year and work for one week a year. If I teach you how to make a million dollars, let's say you even make a hundred thousand. That's a lot of money. But if I can show you how to make a million dollars, you're a good person. It's going to make you a better version of that better, that good person, because now you have more means. So now you could, he looked at me and he literally did this and he started to tear up. 
because nobody had ever helped him put it in perspective. Money's not bad. Money's not evil. Money's a tool. Now, if you are a tool, you are probably going to make bad use of that money. But if you're a good person, it helps you help more people. It's leveraging. That's what it's all about. So, sorry, big tangent. And uh, I want to talk about, though, um, you wrote a book, right? I did write a book. Tell the name of your book. Yeah. Um, Open for Business, The Insider's Guide to Leasing Commercial Real Estate. I uh, released that when I, I was 25. It. Yeah. Okay, 25 years old. So why did you write it? So, um, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm over four years into the business, right? And I had uh, started to realize that I loved working with startups and entrepreneurs. And that's the more difficult side of commercial real estate, right? Because they don't have a lot of money and they're going for smaller spaces. And so, you know, because of that, it gave a young guy in the business opportunity because no one else is really going after this business because it's, you know, there's not enough money. But I realized like, man, I really do love and enjoy this. The issues that I saw kept happening over and over and over again. These business owners are incredibly well-versed in what they need to do on a day-to-day basis for their business. But when it comes to leasing commercial real estate, they had no idea how they were supposed to approach it. And, you know, it's not like signing that apartment lease that you did back in college where you go and tour the space, it looks good, they hand you the contract and you sign it. It's, it's not like that at all. And, uh, you know, I saw many business owners time and time again that didn't know what they were doing, didn't get representation, didn't have a broker, didn't have an attorney. They just went in and trusted the landlord, signed these contracts, spent a whole bunch of money building out space and got completely screwed. We had uh, one retail, uh, you know, the girl was like 24, 25, and she had, you know, gotten her family to invest and she started this boutique and she didn't have any representation and she signed a lease accepting full responsibility for an HVAC unit that was like 15 years old. Well, of course, that's going to blow out. Commercial HVAC units are not like residential. They are big and they are expensive. And so it cost her ten dollars or $12,000 for this tiny little like 1,200 square foot boutique to replace the unit. And she, there was nothing she could do. It's not her fixture. She can't take it with her when she goes, but she agreed in the contract to accept full responsibility for the HVAC. So I got brought in after the fact to help her sublease the space because she couldn't afford to be there anymore. And there was another time where a, um, a local doctor that I worked with, she had always wanted to start up a medical spa. And she decided to open up um, the medical spa immediately adjacent to her medical practice in the space next door because she could, you know, have a staff that kind of runs it. And then she could go from, you know, working with patients to doing Botox next door. Well, she, she, her office was in a blue collar area. I mean, a heavy blue collar area. And on that, it was on kind of a side street. So nobody's going to drive by and see this medical spa, um, let alone the right customer is going to go see it, right? And so she ended up signing a lease there, spent six figures on the build-out, got taken advantage of by her contractor. The contractor didn't even put can lights in the ceiling. She had to put lamps in every corner so that she could light up the space. The uh, contractor didn't buy or he didn't build the, the, the actual spa. He went to, to Home Depot and bought a plastic tub. I mean, it's just, you know, she, she just didn't approach it right. And she spent six figures and lost it all. And so I ended up having to come in and help her relocate the medical spa to a more appropriate side of town. And 
you just think about how much brain damage and money, um, you know, hap- was lost throughout all of that. And so, you know, what I decided, what I, what I started realizing was that there was no guide out there for how to lease commercial real estate for business owners. It just, it didn't exist. I mean, commercial real estate is, is shrouded in mystery anyway, but uh, especially on the business owner side, there's no resources unless you're working with a professional. So that's why I decided to put the book together. I just, you know, kind of chronicled like, hey, here's start to finish the entire leasing process for a business owner. And it's not a, you know, it's not the Bible on leasing commercial real estate. It's a relatively short read. I think it's 150 pages, probably about the same, you know, length that your book is. And it is intended to give a business owner enough knowledge about the process so that they know who to hire. Because that's, at the end of the day, that's what entrepreneurs need. They need the right team. They don't need to learn how to lease commercial real estate. Exactly. Know what you're good at, be good at that, and then hire other professionals around you. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about some of your trials, your tribulations, some of your struggles. But if you had to, like, pick one thing on your travels to here, what has been your biggest challenge outside of just, like, one specific you know, deal that didn't go through, but is there like an overarching challenge? What was your biggest challenge to becoming who you are now? I think the biggest challenge um, to becoming who I am now is honestly, you know, hiring people. Um, you know, when you hire somebody and you promise them a paycheck every week or every two weeks, however you got it structured, that puts a different, uh, different amount of pressure on you. And there were times where, you know, deals would fall apart and I wouldn't have enough money. And, you know, but, you know, I made the conscious decision to to keep paying my assistant or to keep paying whoever I needed to pay that was on my team. And, you know, there were plenty of times um, when I was first getting started where, you know, I couldn't pay the electric bill for a few months. So my electric got shut off and I just had to spend that week and, you know, showering in the dark um, because that was just part of it. But, you know, I wasn't going to let this person who depended on me go hungry because that's not fair. So I think that that was, that was probably the most, I mean, that happened several times because it, you know, it's, it's not easy starting a company, um, especially one that, you know, the sales cycle is four to six months long. So, um, you know, luckily we, we I haven't had those issues in, in a couple of years now. Um, but you know, that it, it never leaves me. I mean, every time, you know, we're running payroll for the company, it, it always just reminds me of being in that place. And I'm grateful I'm not there anymore. Right. So, you know, something for people to learn by listening to that, I would think would be you need more reserves than you think you do in a, in a business. And a lot of people that, you know, are new to entrepreneurism, entrepreneurship, they don't understand that. Look, you need reserves. Don't rape all the profit out of the business. You have to properly fund or capitalize that business on the way in because things like this are going to happen. You will have a dry spell at the beginning. It's, it's very, very common. You know, for the unicorn that, you know, will hit the ground running and sell a billion dollars in the first 10 minutes, they're open. The other 99.999% of startups, it's not going to happen that way. So you need to have ample reserves. Think again about COVID-19. If you didn't have ample reserves in your business because you made really poor capital allocation decisions or you just didn't fund it with enough money up front, well, you're going to go under. Right. You've got PPP, you've got EIDL, you know, all these programs for business owners uh, provided by uh, the stimulus and all of that, you know, the CARES Act. But that runs out eventually if you got it at all. So, you know, to make sure things like that don't happen to you, you need to have reserves all the time. 
that's exactly right. I mean, it's funny, you know, I'd always tell my, my startups and my businesses that we were representing, like you need three to six months of OPEX set aside. And it's, and it's kind of like the, uh, the cobbler whose, uh, kids don't have shoes, right? Like I didn't have three to six months of OPEX set aside. And so I learned from that pretty, pretty quickly. Right. And then turn it to commercial real estate, like what we do. Uh, you know, some of the things that you and I are working on are completely empty buildings. Right. And I'll talk to people that are learning how to do this, how to invest in uh, multifamily or commercial as a syndicator. So it's your job to underwrite the deal. OK, well, you project you're not going to be you know, fully leased up for maybe a year, year and a half, two years. So that tells me you're going to have probably debt. So you're going to have loan payments. You're going to have to pay property taxes. You're going to have to pay insurance. For, there are some things that you still have to pay no matter what, even though there's nobody in the building yet. How are you going to pay those? Oh, I, I didn't really think about that. Well, guys, that's called negative. Care. If you don't raise enough money as a syndicator, if that's the route you go to cover those losses and raise cash up front, you can keep paying your bills until you do turn profitable. Well, guess what? You're either going to go upside down, go out of business, or you're going to have to go crawling back to your investors and own up to the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't ask for enough money up front. So now, hey, for that, you know, hundred thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars in cash flow you thought you were going to get from this on your hundred thousand dollar investment. Well, now your cash flow is going to be the same, but now I need another hundred thousand. So now you're returning about half. Your investors are going to be pissed. And good luck raising money from those people again. So again, reserves, I cannot stress how important they are now. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the last things you ever want to do when you're when you're the sponsor of the GP on a deal is go back and have a capital call. You know, hey, guys, sorry, we kind of underestimated, uh, you know, the whole deal. And now we need to get more money from you. I mean, sometimes there are things that you just cannot foresee that come up that, you know what, this is the best solution. But if if your investors can tell it's because you just didn't do something properly, they will never invest with you again. Because right. they know so that you don't know what you're doing. Exactly. So our approach to negative carry, Tyler and I, on uh, the deals that we do, Let's say we're projected to lose $100,000 in the first year while we have it built out and or leased up, whatever the case is, if we buy an empty building, right? So we think we're going to lose $100,000 through underwriting. We're always going to stack 20% contingency money on top of that. So we're carrying in $100,000 in a reserved account to pay our bills until we're profitable. We're actually going to put $120,000 in there. Again, it's not only having that negative carry accounted for, but have some extra, because like you said, Tyler, there are things that are going to happen that you're not going to see coming. So just, you got to be conservative. And a lot of people say, well, if I'm that conservative, then the deal doesn't work. Well, then the deal shouldn't work. If you can't do it and be conservative with you and your investor's money, don't do the deal. I tell people that all the time. Like, if you can't afford to have an attorney put together an operating agreement, right? Because I have personal experience. If you don't have money to have, you know, the property inspected properly, it probably, you know, if you don't have the money to hire a property management company to manage it for you, the deal probably doesn't work because one thing goes wrong and you're losing money. Like, that's not, that's not a deal. I mean, you know, the first deal I ever did, I've always, you know, I started off when I started investing, like after that development, I started off in the heavy value add arena, the side that everybody is, you know, terrified of, right? Because you got to come in, you got to, you get a completely vacant asset, you got to renovate it, and then you've got to re reposition it, fill it up with new tenants. Um, and luckily, we had enough reserve going into it because, you know, the HVAC unit, even though we had it inspected, and it was doing totally fine, 
ended up blowing out about two or three months into our owning the the property. And guess what? We had to pay, I think, I mean, it was a huge, huge unit. I think we paid 18 grand, um, just, you know, which would have had to have come out of pocket if we didn't have that set aside and we didn't prepare for it. And so, you know, it was, it was good to have that already in the underwriting. Like it didn't really impact the deal. We kind of anticipated something like that would come along. So my investors weren't really upset about it. Part of it. Right. And, and one thing that you said to kind of illustrate this point, too, was if you can't afford to pay a property management company, then you probably that's a hugely important thing to say, oh, but I'm going to manage it myself. Well, OK, and that's fine. So you don't have to pay somebody. Great. But let's say something happened. You get sick, you get injured, you can't work or you just don't want to do it anymore or you suck at managing the property itself. You knew how to do a rehab, you knew how to buy it, but you don't really know how to operate it. Well, now you might have to go hire a third-party management company. So if you don't assume a management fee that you pay to yourself if you're going to do it, but now I got to go out and hire somebody else, well, that's probably an expense you didn't anticipate. So build that into your numbers on the front end that you're going to have to pay a property management fee, but I'm going to do it. Well, then pay it to yourself because if for some reason you decide you don't want to do it anymore, we have already got the budget category allotted for to hire somebody. So again, these are the things that I firmly believe in. Again, like we said last time, I don't want to be your coach. I'm not asking to be your coach, but guys, you need a coach because we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff. We're going to cover everything on this podcast, but if you don't hear every episode and you don't stitch it all together to make one comprehensive guide, you need a coach that's going to be in your corner. So guys, please don't do this on your own. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I mean, even when we have general contractors or architects or engineers that are partners in the deal, we pay everybody market rates because if the deal doesn't work by paying them market rate, then the deal doesn't work. Because what happens if they go out tomorrow and get hit by a bus? Like it's, yeah, you, of course you don't want to think about that, but we don't want the deal to sink because we underwrote it incorrectly and now they're unable to, to do their part of the deal, right? And so, you know, we, you know, this is just personal. I, I don't let anybody contribute their profit from, you know, whatever portion they're doing as equity into a deal. Um, you know, it's no, you're, you're going to come in as every other partner is, and you're going to keep your profit from whatever you're doing. And we're going to pay you market rates. That's just kind of how, um, how we like to set things up. You know, one thing I want to touch on too, going back to the, to the property management thing. I mean, if you really want to do it yourself, cool. That's great. How scalable is that though? I mean, that's, you know, we were talking earlier about scalability you know, sure, maybe you can you can manage, you know, one, two, three properties. But do you really want to be managing one, two or three properties while you're on the beach in Mexico? Like that just doesn't sound like fun to me. Uh, what happens when you get to five, six, seven, ten properties? You know, now you've got to hire a management company to, to really oversee your portfolio. And maybe you've got deals that just don't work with a management fee. That's a problem. That's a problem. So, you know, always think about how something can scale. You know, you've only got so much time and, you know, I know what my, what I'm best at. I'm best at going and finding a deal and putting the vision together and then stepping back out and letting my team do the rest, you know? Right. If you're going to work as that property manager in your example, then, you know, that's probably, uh, you know, on a very small deal, maybe a $30,000 a year job, a big deal, maybe an eighty to $100,000 a year job. But I would guess that you're best suited at the sales, getting the next deal, uh, raising money for a deal. That's probably, you know, has the potential to pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So don't take somebody's $15 an hour job thinking you're, you're making money by saving money. That's, that's just the wrong way to think about building a business. 
you're worth a hell of a lot more than $30,000 a year. Pay somebody else, put them in that position. Well, they can't do it as well as I do. Look, 80% of somebody, 80% uh, of your effort by somebody else is still better than you doing it because now you can have their 80%, you can go do your 100%. So now you're paying somebody $50,000 a year, you got 180%. So I know lots to unpack there, but just think about it that way. But I know we're coming up, we got about 10, 15 minutes left, but. You know, I, I kind of jokingly said at the beginning that you are Tyler, the mayor of East Nat, right? My wife's nickname for you is Punkin, right? But I call you the mayor of East Nashville. So, you know, talking about that, what what do you, what are your big goals? What's your big vision for East Nashville? Because I think you and I, you brought me in, but you primarily have this vision for East Nashville that you want kind of dominate what are you thinking yeah so you know very early on um you know when i first started my commercial real estate career i worked for a boutique development firm and yeah we were building a lot of townhomes but we had office space and retail space and industrial space and we were building a 144 unit apartment complex and so i kind of worked on everything and i thoroughly enjoyed that i loved working on everything and the problem i see with a lot of you know the major you know big five commercial real estate brokerages is that they go, okay, you are the single tenant industrial guy, um, you know, tenant rep. And you get so niche down, like, yeah, maybe you can be the guy in the country for that, but you're a one trick pony. And to me, that just didn't seem like a lot of fun. I wanted to, you know, kind of do a lot of different things. And, but I knew I still needed to niche down, right? And so, um, right before I start, probably six months before I started the company, I did a deal in East Nashville because um, my buddy Brandon over at Wagon Wheel Title. And I was like, man, I've never really spent any time on this side of the, the city and fell in love with it. I mean, it was just everything about it has so much character. It's so cool. It's, you know, I hate to use this buzzword, but it's authentic. And, you know, Nashville has just gone through this, this massive, massive expansion. I mean, you know, when I, you know, when I was a kid, Nashville shut down at 10 o'clock at night. And now we've got 100 people a day moving here, and it's, you know, an 18-hour city. And so, you know, a lot of what, um, you know, used to be kind of the cool local hangouts, they're, they're popular places now. And so, you know, a lot of tourists go there. Just It changes things. East Nashville has always been that just raw, uh, you know, side of town where the creatives can be creative and, and do really cool things. And so I was like, you know what? This side of town is kind of neglected because it was really it's it's been coming up for the last 10, 10 years or so. It used to be the side of town that you just did not go to. And, um, you know, it's coming up. Nobody's really focused over here. A lot of the brokers that are doing projects over here, it's, you know, kind of because somebody happens to own something over here and they're also doing a deal for them over off of West End. So I guess I'll help you out in East Nashville. And I became one of the first brokers in Nashville to actually niche down into a neighborhood. I said, you know what? East Nashville is where I want to be. I don't want to cross the river. I'm going to stay on this side of town, and I'm going to do some of the coolest projects I possibly can. And that's what we've been doing. I mean, obviously, we're the, we're the biggest commercial real estate brokerage in East Nashville. Um, we've got listings you know, all over the place. We know this market better than anyone else. And that was one of the best marketing that I could have ever done because even other brokers will refer people to me going, if you want to be in East Nashville, you got to call Tyler. Like he knows everything over there. And so, you know, I want to buy 
every single piece of property in East Nashville that I can possibly get my hands on. I mean, just geographically, it's one of the best located neighborhoods in the city. You've got quick access to downtown. You've got I-65 going north. You've got Ellington Parkway going north. You've got two major thoroughfares, two major corridors with Gallatin and Dickerson Pike. You've got the Briley Parkway, which is an east-to-west loop. So the connectivity is unparalleled, and you're incredibly close to downtown. So you just think about the, the potential for this area in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And you look at Nashville and compare it to Chicago, right? Like all along the riverfront in Chicago, you've got these massive skyscrapers. Well, there's nothing like that in East Nashville. You go from all of these you know, 20, 30, 40, 50-story towers downtown, you cross the river, it's all like three stories. So to me, there's, there's just a lot of potential there. Um, and I love working with startups, entrepreneurs, and creatives. And this side of town just attracts them. So that's what I want to do in East Nashville. I want to buy every building that I can. I want to develop really cool properties over here. You know, the cool thing about what we get to do is, as commercial real estate professionals, especially for me, because I'm from Nashville, the city's given me so much, is that I get to give back to it. And, you know, we create these incredible places where things happen for people, right? Like you take this raw piece of land and you can put a coffee shop on it or you can put a restaurant or you put, you know, an event venue, right? Like what we're doing at at the provisionary. And now it becomes a hub. There's, you know, all these people are going there and having these experiences that they never would have had otherwise. And to me, there's something just, you know, magical and beautiful about that. That's really cool. And you've also got another deal. So you talked about the provisionary. We're on Dickerson Pike there. Um, uh, So what other project do you have currently kind of in the works in East Nashville? Yeah. So we, we bought a car wash. Um, Thanks for the plug, Bruce. You're going to start washing cars? Yeah, I'm going to start washing cars. I'm pulling a Walter White. I'm actually just going to wander my drug money through it. Uh, so we bought, well, actually, I mean, like one of the bays in there was definitely where people were selling crack. I mean, it's been a decrepit old car wash for years. Um, but I bought this little six bay car wash with a couple of partners and we are converting the bays into micro restaurant concepts. So each bay is about 390 square feet. We're going to deliver them to these restaurant concepts. Um, with a, they're basically walk-up counters. Um, so there'll be picnic tables outside and kind of some like, you know, bags, games, um, where they can hang out and drink and have fun. Um, but it's basically walk-up counter kitchens. You know, you can call them a, a, a retail facing ghost kitchen, which is super popular now. Um, but we'll deliver it with a, with a hood vent, a three compartment sink, a grease trap and a walk-in cooler. And we're kind of revolutionizing how, restaurant tours can start their companies, right? I mean, one of the biggest issues with the restaurant industry right now is that it costs six or seven figures to build out a restaurant and you've got to sign a five or a 10 year lease. But what if you want to, what if you have an idea for a concept and it's never been tried before and you don't know how it's going to go? Are you willing to bet that much on such a, you know, are you willing to gamble? And what we're doing is kind of taking that out of the picture you know, the way that I describe it is like, bring bring your oven and your knives and put your sign on the door. And, you know, that's kind of what we're providing. And so we've got some incredible feedback. We actually haven't even announced the project yet. Um, that's going out on Monday. Um, and 
you know, it's it's highly optimized. It's a post-COVID development, right? So you've got these micro units. Not only are they are affordable, affordable, uh, but they are flexible. Uh, you know, you can sign a six-month, twelve-month lease. All of the parking spaces are optimized for to-go and delivery, so they're ten minutes only. So there's plenty of parking offsite. That's where all the employees will park. But the whole intent is is to make these restaurant units as efficient for these startups and chefs as we possibly can. So you mentioned a word, I don't think we've talked about it yet, but can you talk about ghost kitchens? What is a ghost kitchen? Why is it a big deal? And so what's up with that? Yeah, so that's a great question because ghost kitchens are a hot topic right now. Um, They are going to be, in my opinion, one of the biggest trends of 2021. Um, So a ghost kitchen, actually, they they started out in California uh, with Postmates because these big uh, restaurants started realizing, okay, we're getting so many to-go orders and delivery orders that it is bogging down our in-house dining. And so they started building out kitchens that are specifically just to serve to-go and delivery. So basically, uh, you know, your Postmates, your Uber Eats, um, those types of of products. So um, these ghost kitchens are affordable, right? Because they're, you're not having to pay retail rates. You can literally pay industrial rates, um, which are the cheapest in, in real estate, uh, build out a kitchen, and start serving to go. And so, um, you know, it's it's cutting down on costs. They can be shared by, you know, multiple restaurants or it can be a single concept. And basically what we've done is taking the ghost, it, we've taken the ghost kitchen concept and just made it retail facing. So these restaurateurs, you know, they're paying a little bit more than they would for just a pure ghost kitchen, but they're also getting to capture walk-by traffic. And it's a kind of the next step, right? Cause so a lot of these, these chefs are starting their concepts at, in a ghost kitchen, but they need brick and mortar to really start getting that, you know, uh, recognition and, you know, the brand recognition. And so this is kind of that first step before you really get into getting a big restaurant. So that's pretty cool. And we are doing that. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking at the viability of it. And I think we're going to work it into the deal we're doing on Dickerson, uh, the provisionary. So that's really exciting stuff. So, um, so we've learned a lot about you, your background, where you've come from, uh, the things that you've done to get to where you are as the mayor of East Nashville. But so if people want to get in touch with you, you know, we told them how to you know, look up the stuff about the offering that we have now, the new deal. How do people follow you and get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the best way to get in touch with me is is on Instagram. Uh, probably the same with you, right? Um, you know, just go to uh, commercial in Nashville with underscores in between. Um, and I, I respond to every DM. I've had a ton of people reaching out from YouTube here recently because of that. Um, you know, asking about certain deals, asking about how to get involved in commercial real estate. And I'm always happy to to answer that. Um, would love to start answering y'all's questions on the, on the show because, you know, you, you're not the only one with some of the questions that you got. I promise that. And, and I'd love to, uh, to help some more people out and, and answer that live here. So, so be sure to kind of check out our calendar and see whenever we're doing the live shows. You know, typically Bruce and I are going to be doing this Friday at 10 a.m. Um, but, you know, because of the, the holidays, we've kind of moved uh, our schedule around a little bit for the next couple of weeks. But um, I think Friday at 10 a.m. is a pretty good time for both of us, right? Yeah, and then we will take the recorded version of this live event. We're going to start popping it out to Apple, to iTunes, and the Stitcher, and the SoundCloud, right. and all that, Spotify. So you'll be able to follow us multiple different ways. But yeah, guys, we really want this to be interactive, right? We're going to be talking 
for the majority of the time. We'll have some guests from time to time, but it's really going to be about us covering a topic in extreme depth, but we really would like the interactivity. And if you come to this after the live event, post your questions there, and we'll still get back to you and we'll try to do it public so everybody can see. That's right. So that's it for today's show. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Instagram. Follow Bruce on Instagram at apt.guy. And we will see you all next time. Later, guys.